Hello and welcome to the first Labourist podcast. I'm Labourist editor Mark Ferguson and I'm joined in the studio today by staff writers Maya Goodfellow and Connor Pope. This week we'll be talking about all the big news in the Labour Party with less than eight weeks to go until the general election. So with that in mind, we'll be asking whether a deal with the SNP needs to be ruled out. We'll be examining the latest polls and the results of the latest Labourist survey, including what our readers think about Trident, the SNP and the Shadow Cabinet. And later in the show... We'll be discussing who the rising stars of the Labour Party are going to be in the years ahead. So, the first topic for discussion today in this first podcast, in this inaugural... I mean, obviously there'll be millions of people listening by the end, but you, dear listener, all four or five of you are going to be one of the first people to be listening to this today. So the question that we're asking, this first question... I don't want to labour this, (laughs) but I feel I already have. Um, Should Labour... Do deal with the SNP. I quite vocally think no, but you, Connor, have a slightly different view, don't you? Well, so I wrote a piece for Labourist a couple of months ago um, explaining why I didn't think that we should rule out specifically a deal with the SNP, uh, and which actually has been uh, backed up, I think, by Labourist survey this week, where people say we should keep our options open. My view on it, basically, at the moment, is that. I don't think we're going to see a coalition deal formally uh, between any two parties or more after the election. I, d- I don't believe actually that any two parties will have enough members of parliament to get a majority. And so the idea of a formal coalition at this point I think seems unlikely. Uh, the SNP have already kind of ruled out a formal coalition. So actually Ed Miliband saying we're not going to do a deal with you isn't going to have much of an impact on it. Because he, he said last night on this BBC free speech thing, they've already ruled out a coalition with me. But he said, he keeps on saying coalition now, not deal. There's a big difference, isn't there, Maya? Yeah, and I think um, he came quite close to, ru- he came very close to ruling anything out at all um, in that uh, BBC Three programme. But there's no appetite for ruling out a deal in some form amongst Labour people, I don't think. So 63% of people in our survey said, don't rule anything out. And I think because Labour are set to do so badly in Scotland that it would be a massive mistake to rule out any mm. kind of partnership with the SNP who have such a massive support in in the, like, north of the border. I, I think politically what will be the biggest task for Labour and the SNP, each of them will be trying to paint the other as being more like the Tories in any post-election deal. I think that will especially come up around a budget. Um, so the SNP will want to walk away and say, we can't work with Labour there, and, and they're wedded to austerity. And Labour will be trying to kind of do the opposite and say, look at the SNP voting down a Labour budget with the Tories uh, and that sort of thing. So it's basically whoever is able to best portray the others as being more like the Tories who will be more successful in Scotland in a few months' time, I would have thought. So there's a real antipathy, I think, against this deal from the Scottish party, mm-hmm. but potentially, I mean, that's very difficult for Ed Miliband because he can't say this publicly, but a lot of the people within the parliamentary party who are going to hate this the most are the people who, because of the likely rise in SNP votes, yeah. are less likely to be there. Which I think obviously is a bit awkward for Ed. Yeah, but I think that it's interesting because we ran a story earlier in the week that said there are lots of Scottish MPs, but also MPs who are in northern towns mm. who potentially feel like uh, there was such vocal um, 
been such a, a vocal amount of people who were, were against uh, the Scotland going independent. So in, in those northern towns, so those MPs as well as the Scottish MPs are really pushing this idea that there's going to mm. be no deal at all mm. because they're worried about mm. how that's going to undercut their support. Mm. So it's not just an issue for, in Scotland, it's potentially, I mean, there, there are so many MPs who will keep their seats in, in northern towns, but it's potentially also an issue for those mm. people if Labour seeing is going soft on the SNP. I mean, it's, it's something that I hear quite often when I'm, a home in the northeast is this idea that Scotland already gets more. There's a perception, I think, in large parts of England that Scotland already gets more, partially because of the Barnard formula, partially because of decisions taken by Scottish governments of all different stripes on things like prescription charges and things like tuition fees. So I think there is a concern as to how this plays out for the Labour Party in England. Mm -hmm. If people already feel like Scotland gets a good deal, and then Scotland are now getting more powers as a result of the the Smith Commission. And could they get more powers still through a, a deal with the Scottish National Party? Actually, what was really interesting on Ed Miliband's appearance on Free Speech was that quite a few times this question, will you rule out now a deal with the SNP, it came up. It came up three or four times. What that says to me is these posters that the Tories have been making of Ed Miliband in Salmon's pocket or Ed Miliband and Alex Salmon walking into number 10 together, they're cooking through. Mm, absolutely. I, mean, I think the, it's um, it's very difficult for Labour because all that most people in the re- in in the part of the country where the Tories need to win, i.e., not Scotland, <laughs> um, the only thing people know about Alex Salmond is that everybody else doesn't like him because that is the the argument that has been advanced over the course of the referendum. Um, so that's a, a real challenge for Labour. If it's it's almost particularly a challenge because Salmond will be that SNP leader, I think. But he is such a bogeyman to uh, to the other political parties. That makes it very difficult. But you're you're right in the sense that, um, that it's really cut through, especially with young people. I mean, we have to sort of disentangle young people. And we can talk about young people and their views in a moment. But the kind of young person that goes and sits in the audience for a BBC Three free speech programme is not necessarily your average young voter. But still, the fact that it's cut through is clearly, is clearly very interesting. Shall we talk about young people then? There's been some polling, I think, came out on young people this week. Maya, you, you were yeah. quite interested in this. So um, there was some polling done by YouGov, I think it was, for uh, Radio 1. Um, and they were asking young people about what their top three um, policy concerns were going into the general election. And uh, they compared that with what the um, general public say. Uh, so the first one is the same as it always is, the NHS. Um, so 50% of the general public think the NHS is the biggest concern, which is no surprise. And amongst young people, it's less, 42%, but it's still their biggest concern. So that shows Labour's message on the NHS is one that, that which they're going to stick to, is one that could, you know, could persuade some young people to, to vote Labour come May. Um, but what I thought was really interesting is that num- the, the number two concern was the cost of living, and that doesn't come into. I don't think that comes into the top three with the general public. But if it does, it's mm. it's not in the top two. Um, uh, and we're expecting that to be Labour's next general election pledge. Yeah. So I think that that that's also quite an interesting um, ground that young people are worried about. You know, the cost of living in terms of like transport, but uh, you know, food costs and how they're going to fare. Like how they're at university, but also post university, because it's eighteen to twenty-four year olds who um, they're asking. Um, and the third issue um, with immigration, so obviously amongst the general population, that comes in second with forty-nine percent. 
but with young people it's much less. 28% were concerned about immigration. It's, it's a real challenge for, for sort of Labour and the left here on immigration, isn't it? Because the general population, I mean, the general population, immigration is such a huge issue. It's pretty much level pegging, I think, in this poll with the, with the NHS, wasn't it? So if you consider the extent to which young people really don't care about immigration, it's really not a big issue for them. It shows the extent to which, in the rest of the population, the part of the population that's more likely to vote, mm-hmm. it is a much bigger issue. Mm-hmm. But we've also got the, this, this group of young people coming through and more young people behind them. And generally, whatever age you are, uh, the higher your age, sorry, the older you are, the, <laughs> your age, the older you are, the more that you are to care about immigration. I mean, so, I mean, is this something that the Labour Party and political parties need to be taking account of? You know, will, will UKIP, or what UKIP stands for, anti-immigration, cutting off our ties from the world, stepping back from Europe, is that something that's going to die out in a way? Because the kind of people who care about UKIP's biggest users are a lot older. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think it, often depends on the way that political parties respond to that. So UKIP are going to carry on banning this drum. And it's not just, you know, there are younger people who are unemployed. They're living in areas where there's um, very few job prospects, where the UKIP message will potentially cut through. But I think Labour's message, I mean, I vocally disagreed with this on a number of occasions, uh, Labour's message that immigration is good, but doesn't work because all people hear is there is a problem when it comes to immigration. Oh, well, Labour accepting that. They was, they they let all the immigrants in, as it were. Um, so we're going to vote UKIP. Uh, so I think that's a really big... In the, in the years to come past this election, that's a really big challenge for the Labour Party, is how they're going to address this, because they should be the ones out there saying what UKIP are saying isn't right, and this is why, and these are the real issues. I think there's two uh, important points on this. On immigration polling it's always quite interesting. If you put control immigration as the topic, as comrades do, then Labour always finish quite far behind the Tories and UKIP. However, if you just put the topic as immigration, who can best handle immigration policy, the number of people who think Labour are level pegging with UKIP and the Tories, it it's basically the same. And you get a similar thing for welfare and Europe as well. The number of times, especially actually very soon after the Tories announced their plan for an EU referendum, there was a consensus that the Tories had made massive ground on Europe. Well, they've lost two MPs and come third in the European election. It's a sense of, well done, Prime Minister. However, um, at the time, there was still polls saying that Labour was, I mean, neither were particularly well trusted, but they were relatively level pegging, which suggests that for a lot of people, Staying in Europe is part of dealing with Europe, which is something that's often a part of the conversation. But I think what's also interesting about that when, in terms of the immigration topic is that there was survey polling um, done for us that showed people when people said they were very concerned about immigration in general, when the question was then um, just about their local area, immigration came much lower. So it's more how we talk about immigration, how mm. we see it as a problem, and then how it actually manifests itself in communities are two different topics, and we don't disentangle those two things. Um, Moving on to national polls in general, it's all, I mean, there's this phrase crossover, the the Tories have been very keen to talk about this idea that there's a point coming soon where the Tories will inevitably move ahead of the Labour Party. It looked like there was a bit of that earlier this week, but it now seems to have moved back in the opposite direction. The two parties seem to be level pegging in a lot of the polls, some slight Tory leads, some slight Labour leads. 
Are we going to get crossover, or is, is crossover a bit of a myth? I mean, we could. It certainly hasn't happened yet. There are too many polls where Labour are leading for us to say with any certainty that there has been a point when the Tories have taken the lead. They haven't. Um, the problem is, is that Labour's support is on a decline, but it has been on a decline since about April 2013, I think it is when you look at the polling. And that's the last time that we uh, reached 40% on average in the polls. Since then, it's been coming down slowly and surely. And the Tories have edged up, but not by very much in that time. So I think over the next six weeks, uh, we are going to see a lot of Tories in the lead in one poll, Labour in the lead on another poll. Basically, at the moment, it's level pegging. And you can't look at a trend like that, which happens at non-election time, and say that is going to carry on into an election period because there's just going to be a lot happening here. Quite often around this kind of time in an election cycle, writers, commentators, pundits, whatever you want to call them, us, will be asked to predict what the result of the general election is. Does anyone feel brave enough to guess what the result of the general election might be? I'd just like to put it out there, I'm not sure I'm brave enough to do it. <laughs> anyone? Well, I've already said earlier on in this podcast that I don't think any two parties working together will be able to get a majority. I mean, obviously... If the Labour and the Conservatives worked in a grand coalition, they would, but no. Which we should stress is not going to happen. Well, yeah, Ed Miliband was asked about that last night. Uh, Someone said to him, uh, what would you do if you had to work in a coalition with the Conservatives? And he just went, I wouldn't. (laughs) You can say many things about Ed Miliband, and many people have, but I think the idea that he is Ramsay (laughs) MacDonald reincarnated for the 21st century are... It wouldn't really fit in with... I'll tell you what, it's one way to do with Red Ed... But somehow, I don't think he's going to do it. But that is, my, that is the only prediction I'm willing to make. I, I, I honestly still think Labour will be the largest party. Um, that's not particularly borne out by national polls right now. It's incredibly tight. Uh, the idea that Labour used to have a majority, uh, or could get a majority much easier than the Tories, has been blown out of the water by Scotland, because... That was a huge part of Labour's inbuilt advantage within the current system. Labour would win seats relatively easily in Scotland. The Tories were nowhere. However, I still think Labour will outperform those national polls and some of the marginal seats because of the amount of work that's being done. Yeah, but it's so close in a lot of them. Mm. Like places like Grimsby, where like UKIP could potentially do very well. Mm. I just think it's too close to fall. Mm. On, on that point, can I just say, we, we have seen, I think, a slight decline in UKIP's polling over the past couple of months and I've been in some northern marginals where people are saying to me, Labour activists are saying, actually on the council estate where usually we do well but UKIP have been doing well recently, Mm. that UKIP vote is starting to disappear and when Gillian Duffy came out this week and said I am going to vote Labour, she said UKIP are more right wing than the Tories that is Labour's line to northern voters on UKIP, verbatim She's more on message than some people have said on government. But I think they, the interesting thing is there was this perception, and it's one that I, I thought made sense. I think a lot of people thought it made sense early in this parliament that said if, if you could stay above 10% and the Lib Dems stay at or below 10%, then there's only so many places for the voters to go. Labour should win under those circumstances. But now we consistently still, even with UKIP having slumped a bit, are on 
11, 12, 13%. The Lib Dems, depending on the poll, are between 5 and 9%. They're very much the fourth party in the polls now. And yet still, we're getting Tory leads. It's, it's a bizarre election that is both not as interesting as it should be, but also completely unknowable in terms of the result. It's, it's interesting without being exciting. <laughs> so keep on listening to the podcast while we keep on talking about it. Um, one other thing I did want to talk about uh, before we move on to, on to our, our big topic for the day, rising stars of the Labour Party, is uh, the rest of the Labour survey results. So we alluded to the fact that the majority of Labour readers don't want to rule out a deal of some description with the SNP. But we also did some interesting polling, well, sorry, not polling, we did interesting survey work <laughs> on Trident, didn't we? Yeah, uh, and I mean, there is a total split, as there often is on this issue, um, and 48% of people wanted to try and abolish, but when we then, with the way we split the um, the question, uh, the people who want Trident to be kept in some form or another or renewed forms the rest of that um, percentage with, like, don't know, taking it, like, I don't know, 5% mm-hmm. of it, so it really is a split. Um and I think it's a split, maybe in this room too. Um, <laughs> what we all think about Trident, um, because I'd fall into the with the forty eight percent who want Trident abolished, um, and I think it's quite interesting that it's not. This isn't necessarily just an issue on the left. Uh, there's people like Michael Portillo and Des Brown, who's a former Labour Defence um, Secretary, who've said that Trident is past its sell by date and that it's a waste of money. And I mean that's. It's, it comes down to two issues, people who are against Trident. Um, that is the cost. Uh, renewing it is going to cost £100 billion. And when there's all the parties signed up to austerity in some form or another, it becomes quite difficult to justify that, especially when um, you're going to want to spend on defence anyway. And when it comes to stuff like cyber warfare, how, how are you going to manage that budget? Um, but also, I think that renewing Trident actually risks proliferation elsewhere and doesn't do what it people claim that it's going to do um because if the uk is really committed to multilateral disarmament they need to be moving forward with it and what they're actually doing there's a there's a treaty between the us and the uk um that's called the mutual defense agreement and that actually breaches the non-proliferation treaty because the uk and the us trade nuclear materials and there's you and um, War, uh, warheads and um, missiles from Trident or services in Georgia. So it becomes a very uh, uncomfortable terrain if, if you do believe in um, multilateral disarmament. But I know that that's... Something that has come up this week, though, is this idea of how much we should be spending on defence. Mm. Should we be committing to mm. 2% defence spending? Now, if we, as a party, agree that 2% defence spending, staying within those, those limits, staying within broadly what NATO... Uh, would want us to be doing uh, it's the right thing to do but we get rid of Trident does that not just mean that we spend the money on bombs and bullets and having a larger army and conventional weapons rather than uh, I guess unconventional weapons like Trident well we can talk about getting rid of Trident and staying in NATO but that's uh, there is a problem there which would be that you have to have some sort of nuclear deterrent system to be a member of NATO so there are other options, and I think uh, that uh, Michael Portillo uh, is probably not a unilateral uh, disarmament supporter. I imagine when he talks about getting rid of Trident, it's past its sell-by date, I think he probably means replacing it with a different sort of nuclear deterrent system. 
So there are lots and lots of options. It is a very nuanced policy area that is quite difficult. Um, but what I found really interesting about the survey was that the way it split was almost exactly the same as on question that we did a few months ago about higher education funding, which, again, if you wanted to have a sort of contributory system, whether it's fees or graduate tax, it was all split up. But basically, in the end, it came down to a 50-50 split. One final question that we did ask in the survey this week was about what people think about the Shadow Cabinet. I'm not sure there's much we can talk about here because it's pretty much the same every time we ask this question, which is Andy Burnham far and away up at the top, a small cluster of people, I think Yvette Cooper, Chuck Ramuna, a couple of others uh, up there as well, sliding scale down towards the same two or three names down at the bottom. Do you think people's... It's interesting because... For a lot of the country, they don't even know who the Shadow Cabinet are. Yet, it seems for Labourless readers, obviously, who take more of an interest in the Shadow Cabinet than many, their views seem pretty fixed. Yeah, I mean, what I always find interesting is that if you look at the number of people who have voted for each yeah. member, the further you go down the list, the less popular ones, in air quotes, uh, fewer people vote for them. But it just seems that they have less of an opinion on these mm. people rather than disliking them. Yeah, and I think there is, I mean, I, my dad said to me this week, I went through the list, and he's, you know, storage labour, uh, he didn't know half of them, which mm. I think is, is really interesting, and I think that is, uh, like, does come out in then in then the ratings and how they're ranked. Well, it's, it's come across a few times before, hasn't it, in the, in the press, this idea that the Shadow Cabinet need to pull their weight more, but you also get something from the Shadow Cabinet, so because you've got everything going through Ed Miliband, going through the leader, quite often he's the focus of a lot of the big speeches, all of the announcements on what the key manifesto commitments are going to be, he's the focus of the party political broadcasts, there maybe aren't always the opportunities for people to make themselves known. However, that's a perfect segue <laughs> to the final bit of the podcast today, where we're going to talk about who some of the rising stars of the Labour Party might be, because there are people within the Parliamentary Labour Party who maybe don't always have the big jobs, who maybe don't always have the big portfolios, but still manage to make a name for themselves. So this is something that we're going to be talking about more at our half-day conference, which is on Tuesday the 17th of March. Tickets are still available uh, if you want to join us. We'll also be covering it on the site. But we want to spend some time talking about who some of those future big names, the big beasts of the future might be both within the Parliamentary Labour Party and prospective parliamentary candidates who are going to become MPs who might become some of those big characters. Maya, who do you have your eye on? Um, yeah, so I have uh, picked three women. I thought, uh, get behind uh, Harriet's campaign to get more women in politics. Um, and I think one of the people who is um, currently an MP uh, who would be one to watch would be Shivana Mahmood. So she is in the Shadow Treasury team and mm. she's has been like been quite vocal around all the HSBC scandal stuff, um, and yeah, she she's very good, and I think uh, she could potentially have a more prominent role to play. And having been part of the Treasury team under Red Balls is not necessarily a bad way to start. Rachel Reeves was obviously a member of the Shadow Treasury team. Angela Eagle had previously been uh, Shadow Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Owen Smith, who's gone on to be Shadow Wales Secretary, uh, Wales Secretary is. Former member of the Shadow Church routine, Ed Ball certainly looks after people who've been in his team. <laughs> However, the the other side of that might be, I know Siobhan is very highly regarded by the Treasury team, which might mean that they want to keep a hold of her. Yeah. Um, 
Come on. I think mine's got two more names. <laughs> well, no, I was going to. I was going to go oh, around. Okay, you see, this is the first podcast. Sorry, the chairing system has <laughs> collapsed. <laughs> collapsed. My iron grip on labour list is is loosening by the day. Your profile with um, Liz Kendall, which was up on the site this morning. I think she's someone who's very highly regarded. She's very good. Um, I think I, I think there were lots of people. Steve Reed has, has been mm. making a good name for himself. Dan Jarvis has been on the telly today with the uh, Afghanistan Memorial. Mm. Um, I think he's he's very good. I think there are lots and lots of people in the PLP. Well, there's there's something that someone said to me about Dan Jarvis the other day. It's this idea that the Tories always want to try and make uh, things like defence, for example, very uncomfortable. Matters of war and peace, very uncomfortable for the Labour Party because I think we are more. Um, reticent at times as a party about some of those really tough international decisions that sometimes require military action. It'd be quite hard for someone to stand up at the dispatch box and accuse a, a, a Dan Jarvis of being uh, frightened of going to war because he can say, I've, you know, I've been in a war, I've been dropped out of a plane from 10,000 feet into a war. Um, and when he's seen Helmand Province, <laughs> I imagine the House of Commons doesn't hold as much for him. But no, Liz Kendall's an interesting one as well because in many ways she looks like the traditional Labour politician of the last 20 years. She used to work for an MP, she's worked as a special advisor, but she's also worked in um, uh, running a large charity in maternity care and also uh, being involved in the ambulance service. So there's there's something interesting there. I was very impressed out on the road with her, how well she engaged with the individual campaigns that people are running in their local areas, how keen she was to work with parliamentary candidates. And also how good she was on the doorstep, which, let's be honest, even some of our best parliamentary performers are not always as good when confronted with that little thing called talking to the voters. <laughs> Who else did you have in mind, Maya? Um, so I also picked uh, two PPCs. Um, so Kate Osmoran, who's going to be standing mm. at Edmonton, and she, she'll probably win that. It's at um, Labour at the moment. Um, and there's a pretty good profile on her in the New Statesman that mm. caught my eye. And she just seems like an interesting one to watch. Um, similarly, someone who will most likely be an MP come May, uh, Louise Haig in Sheffield mm. Um She's a strong trade unionist, and I think she is will appeal well to the voters in Sheffield. There's a lot of strong PPCs on this list. Mm. I mean, one of the one of the slightly troubling things about when the polls start to narrow is especially doing something like writing for Labour List, you've put names and faces to the constituencies that you're talking about. So I tend to get much more stressed about the Ashcroft constituency polls than I do about national polls, because I'm thinking about people who I know are running great campaigns, people who I know will be good MPs, especially actually a huge number of fantastic young female MPs. I mean, there was a real ups- upsurge in, in young female MPs in 2010, but I really do think we're going to see it. Again, this time. Uh, someone you haven't mentioned, actually, who was a bit of a star for us at, at Labour Party Conference this year was Amina Lohm, um, who is... Uh, she had this brilliant line in our Labourless rally that said, um, you know, I was a, uh, I'm was a single mum of, of four kids. In the Tory party, I'd be broken Britain, but in the Labour Party, I'm a parliamentary candidate. And I think there are a lot of these really sparky, exciting people potentially, potentially coming through. I think actually we've got lots of very good PPCs who have not taken 
an easy route into Parliament. Mm. I think a lot of our best PPCs are standing in seats that they're going to have to do very, very well to win. Mm. I think Amina Lone is one. I think uh, Rowena Davis in Southampton Itchen, even though we hold it at the moment, mm. that's going to be a very close battle. Absolutely. I think uh, Jessica Asato in Norwich. I think Wes Streeting in Ilford North. Um, Lee Sheriff even in uh, up in Cumbria. I think that could be a difficult one to win, but yeah. she's, again, very, very Lee, good. Lee, Lee Sheriff, part of a... We, we always talk about these uh, family ties in Parliament, but... You know, nobody would say that the Sheriff sisters are your traditional Labour Party politicians. <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic that they both come into this position where both, hopefully they'll both be elected into Parliament in just a few weeks' time. But, you know, they're a far cry from the Benz or the Millibands, the sort of the established big-name families of the Labour Party, which is is fantastic. And I think we do have a lot of talent within this list. Obviously, what what the Labour Party has to guard against is if the if the election doesn't go the right way, if a lot of these people aren't elected to Parliament, how do you keep them involved? Because I can only imagine how hard it is to spend three or four years campaigning in the same seat, only to wake up one morning, realise that all of your money, all of your time, all of your energy has gone to something and you, and you haven't won. And how do you keep those people involved? Um... That's a very cheery note to end. I'm on. Maybe you should... Yeah, no, you're right. That is a cheery note much to end. Well, there we go. There we go. Um, but I, I, it's, it's, it's fundamentally a positive message because there are so many talented people out there and not everybody, despite what we all may want, not everywhere will elect a Labour candidate on May 7th. God knows why. Um, that's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week. If anyone listens to this first podcast, there is. Thanks for downloading and listening. Tell your friends about it. Thanks to Connor and Maya for joining me in the studio. I'm Mark Ferguson, and this has been the Labourless Podcast. Goodbye!